seated. Um, Melva is available to be down in the nursery, so if the, the little ones want to head down there, they're sure welcome to do so. Um, we're continuing this uh, kind of brief fall series, um, looking at um, the kind of the liturgy of our gathered worship together. Um, our thesis has been that we gather for expression of praise and for God to do a work of formation in us, in the belief that at the heart of discipleship is worship. So all week long, we've talked about this several times now in a row, all week long we're in various places um, outside of these walls here um, that each present, and even perhaps without us knowing, um, a story about who we are and why we are here. And all those stories and all those places um, shape us. Um, for good or for bad, um, they do shape us. And so we come together as a body once a week, and in a sense, we come here to be, um, as one author calls it, restoried again, um, according to God's story, shaped by God's true story for the world. Um, and we've been looking at that. That is best done um, through a biblically informed pattern of worshiping together, that as we let that flow over us week by week by week by week, those habits and those patterns begin to shape how we think, how we feel, how we interact with the world, how we interact with each other. Um, the four parts are gathering, word, table, and sending. They are nothing new, as we said. We have been doing these forever. We just have not really shined a light on them in order to really um, walk into each of those places in the fullness of what they're meant to do. So last week we were looking at, um, we looked at gathering. By the way, um, if the word liturgy, um, every time you hear it, it kind of like, oh, kind of you're not sure what you think of that, um, Acts 13, 2, it's just one of many verses. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Lord spoke to him. The word worshiping there is a word for liturgy. And so we, we are really talking about worship and the way God shapes it and forms it to make a difference in us. And we are really seeking here um, to not necessarily be content with what seems right, but to really seek the Lord for um, a biblically rich and a biblically shaped pattern of worship. So recall last week as we looked at the first part, which is the gathering, which we talked about. Usually we say, welcome, you're here. Um, we'll read something, and then off we go with whatever we're planning on doing, but it's supposed to be much more than that. We had two, uh, two key parts of that. One was how we begin shapes the rest of our time. Um, the way we begin our worship lays out the pattern for what way the rest of our, our pattern of worship. The same way the way we begin our day impacts the rest of our day. The way we gather in here when we come in the doors will shape the remainder of our time together. So we begin remembering that the Lord is the host. Um, he is the one that has invited us. Um, and the gathering time, this beginning portion of our service, is a chance to begin to, um, in, in a way, begin to unburden ourselves um, from the things that would distract or those other stories um, to, in a sense, disengage from them enough to actually hear clearly God's restoring of our hearts um, in our gathered worship. So part of it is, is letting go of those things, but then the second half of that is then paying attention to the Creator and the Almighty, the one who's actually our host, and remembering a bit about who he is and his character and his nature. We want to pay attention to a grace-giving, almighty God. And so, like last week, we, um, we kind of just 
entered right into um, the holiness of God. We just stepped right into it. And we let ourselves become inundated with God and his character and all that he is, and that's, that helps pay attention to him. Tonight a little bit, we kind of took some time to try to verbalize a bit of where our hearts can be and then begin to pay attention to him and bring him into that spot because only when we do that can we really listen um, to his words. Second of all, from last week, worship begins with God. Um, he is the initiator of our, everything that happens. And we looked at this whole thing of all of worship is revelation and response. God reveals and we respond. Um, so in our gathering, our focus on the word and even the table and even in the sending portion of our service, God reveals himself and we're going to respond. So even like we'll see in our sending time, um, our announcements are supposed to be um, as God reveals things, callings and invitations to us, not just stuff to do. And then we respond to that in various ways. Um, he invites us, and our response is one to come. Um, he invites us, um, he reveals his character to us, and we respond by giving him praise. Um, he reveals um, things in our life that are in disorder. We respond with confession, um, re- revelation, and response. And that happens primarily here in this gathering portion. The second portion of our um, liturgy is the word. Um, we just spent, um, and be, since we just spent eight weeks in January and February uh, examining that, we, we had this whole time, we spent our time in the New Testament, we looked at what do we believe as a church about the Word, how do we study the Word, the, the manner in which we teach the Word here. We kind of covered all that, so I don't want to do that tonight. Rather, um, I want to do a couple different things. One, I want to look at the place of the Word um, among God's people in the Scriptures. Where did the scriptures, what place did they find in the people of God through scripture? So a very brief overview of that. Second of all, I want to take a little historical, very brief historical journey to the place of the scriptures in the life of the church over the history. It has changed over time. And it brings us up to where we find ourselves today here, and even as a church um, here gathered at the vineyard. Thirdly, I want to introduce the connection between the word and the table, which is what we look at next week. And I want us to see if there's a, um, there are inseparable pieces of this uh, liturgy. And then lastly, we're going to open up one biblical story that shows the place of the word and why it makes a difference where we place it in the liturgy of our gathered worship. So first of all, God's word among God's people. God's word among God's people. And there's no, um, if you're wondering, where are the slides tonight? There aren't any. So, um, um, I thought, you know, we're just kind of walking through some things. There's not, there's not a lot here to um, necessarily scribble down. It's just kind of, um, let's consider the place of the scriptures here at the vineyard. God's word among God's people. Um, right out of the very beginning of the Old Testament, what do we get? We get God doing what? He's a speaking God. God is a God who used words. And right from the very beginning, he uses words to speak creation into existence and then over and over and all, we have um, God not only speaking creation into existence, but immediately with the people he creates, he reveals through words his intentions and his plans and the purposes what they're made for, um, what life is about, what relationships are about, right in the very those first chapters. And he speaks to them in his words, and he gives them his commands, he gives them his heart, um, and all is done as he speaks to them. Um, and that eventually, um, there's lots of speaking, <laughs> Uh, interesting, um, although it seems like a lot, it's uh, spread out. Abraham even only got, apparently, God's speaking voice every now and then, like decades apart. He was waiting for God to speak again. 
Um, but God's speaking, and eventually all that revelation of God in words um, was written down by various people that we have through the Old Testament. So we eventually get it um, written down. All of it was God disclosing himself, revealing himself, using words to do so with the intention that we would then, the people would take those words and pass them from generation to generation as um, not the only but the primary um, ways of us knowing God. If God did not reveal himself, we wouldn't know him. And then one of the most significant ways he's revealed himself is through his word. And that began right from Genesis and runs all the way through the Old Testament. Um, in the Old Testament, that um, passing along of the scriptures, the, the, the revelation of God in words was to happen in two contexts. Um, it, was happen, it was supposed to happen in the home, and it was supposed to happen in the gathering of God's people. So even as we're talking about a liturgy of our gathered worship, there's a whole liturgy of home life that actually takes precedence first, and it's um, the gathered worship almost assumes that that's already happening in the home, and we, we add to it. So even in, Revel, in Deuteronomy 6, we talk about wherever you go, whatever you're doing, be, be passing this along, these words of God, the scripture, over and over in all different contexts, be sharing um, the value of them. And then they come together and gather a community, and they rehearse them again and again and again. So in the gathered community in the Old Testament, we begin to see a regular pattern where the people would gather and there would be an intention to scriptures. It's interesting that um, you kind of wonder, why did God give all these very definitive patterns and things that you're supposed to do in their worship? It's exactly what we're doing here because the repetition of these patterns, these creation of habits, um, begin to speak into the hearts of the people. And at the heart of those habits in the Old Testament was a reading of God's word, the readings of the scriptures. And so in numerous places in the Old Testament, we get the people coming together, assuming that the scriptures are being shared in the home, and they come together and there is a gathering around God's written revelation. Um, one of those um, key places was actually after the exile in Nehemiah um, chapter 8. We get this great picture of all the people. And you have the young, and you have the old, you have the littlest ones to the oldest ones, all gather around and they stand for a reading of the whole law before them, which that goes forever. Um, and yet their whole gathering was simply for the purpose of sitting underneath the reading of God's words um, to them. Um, you go back earlier, and we have um, the story of Josiah, who we have a little one named after. Um, they're digging around the temple, if you remember that story, and the priests find a book, and they're like, this is a great book. What is this book? And it's actually Deuteronomy. It had been so um, neglected, perhaps decades and decades or a century, that nobody even knew what the book was anymore, and they bring it out, and Josiah says, read it, and they read it, and that, um, that triggers this revival in Josiah's own heart that then he institutes uh, a work in the people that actually saves a generation from exile till later on. And the, the, the idea from that is they're supposed to read the scriptures um, and do them all the time. It's supposed to be a regular pattern of the gathered life. Their neglect of that led to the, the community drifting away and completely um, walking away from him. And so right in the, in the first, in the whole Testament, we get this importance of a public reading of the word. That continues on, um, when we pick up the, uh, in the New Testament, we have the gathering of the synagogue has, has now become the get, primary meeting place for people after the destruction of the temple and heading into Jesus' time and the public reading 
of the scriptures was part of the heart of the synagogue worship. So that's why we get Jesus coming along in Luke 4, and um, they had a regular pattern and order, almost a schedule of reading, to make sure they read through the scriptures and the Torah. And so Jesus walks into his home synagogue, and there's a reading, and he picks it up and he reads it, and then he has a commentary on it, a very short one, by the way. It's, this has been fulfilled. He speaks to it and inaugurates his ministry. And so there's this public reading of scripture that actually is a pivotal point in the life and the work of the Messiah. Acts 2.42, we see that the early church then continues to pick it up. It says, we read this last week, the early church gathered. And what did they do? They gathered for the public reading of the scriptures. It says, in the teaching of the apostles' teaching, um, over and over again. As a matter of fact, by then, they were actually regularly taking prayers. Um, the Psalms, taking the Psalms and singing those, which are the scriptures put the song. And then you have prayers that are taken right out of scripture. And you have a regular reading of the scriptures whenever they gather together. Um, I think we're going to get this, but I think one of our failings here is we have a bit of teaching. We don't do a lot of reading of the scriptures. Um, and, and so we don't get the whole breadth of them. We don't let the scriptures be the, the main speaker as the Holy Spirit works through those in our midst. And so the early church picks that up um, right in the beginning as well. Paul exhorts Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13. He says, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture and to exhortation and to teaching. So in that church, he says, make sure you're always reading it, not just personally, but amongst God's people, and then teach it and bring exhortation from it. So we have reading of the word, we have teaching, and even using the word as a guide um, for prayers, which is the pattern that we get right from the beginning, and it's carried on by the early church. Um, so what happened after that? Um, the early church, um, just a little historical look at this, the early church made reading and teaching a part of all their gathered services. Um, Justin Martyr, writing in AD 150, um, so that's, um, we get this from him. He says, on the day called Sunday, everybody who lives in cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles, which could have been the gospels, um, or the writings of the prophets are read, as long as time permits. Interesting, they had a time issue then. Um, and then when the reader has ceased, the president, um, that's the elder, the chief elder, whatever it is, um, they call him the president, verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these things. And then we all stand together and pray. And as we have said before, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought, and the president in like manner offers prayers and thanksgivings. It actually goes on to describe exactly what the early church was doing as they gathered. But one of the key things, they got together and they read the scriptures, um, believing that if it's, God's, if it's God's revelation, what is the best teacher to our hearts? It's the word of God, his words being read. Um, and so they were read regularly on. So early on, there was a balance of reading scripture and prayers based on scripture, teaching that all intertwined. And as a matter of fact, there's a, portions of the New Testament that they actually believe were little mini hymns that they were singing. Um, and there's, there's a couple of them in there. It'd be great to put some of those to music. Um, Jesus even said in the Passover, they, they, they sang a hymn and they went out. So they, there was this balance of, um, of coming before God and gathering and being with one another in this fellowship, and there's a reading of scripture, and there's exhortation, teaching, and they sang, and there's this prayers, and there's this healthy mixture of that. Um, I, I've used this illustration before, but it's like the pot pie thing. Everything's kind of mixed together. Um, 
the church eventually goes to the TV dinner approach where we separate everything out and then the things we don't like, we toss out. So if you don't like that little piece, you just skip that, right? Um, and that's kind of what happened over the his- history of the church. As often happens in the church, uh, things swing frequently out of balance. And the very first imbalance that came um, in the church um, was a, um, a focus on the table, was what eventually came. The, the, the gathered table, which is significant, um, became not just the center, which it is, but became the whole service. That this became, that became the whole thing. The reading of scripture began to, was done in Latin eventually. And so they still read scripture, but nobody knew what was being said. So the people, the, the common person didn't know Latin, so there's reading of scripture, but they don't understand it. The table, they can only participate in partially, but it became the centerpiece and dominated the service, and almost no teaching at all. As a matter of fact, it eventually faded out um, altogether. The reformers came along and brought a, new, a renewed emphasis on the scriptures, both reading it and teaching, and they promoted a, uh, a rebalance of the reading of the scripture the teaching, the table, um, and even began to institute a fresh, um, a fresh intake of, of singing, which Luther really promoted a lot of singing um, in his services and began to get a balance. But the, uh, the reformers were quickly out of balance. It did not take long for that to swing out of balance very, very quickly. And a lot of it had to do with the controversy um, over the table, um, but um, eventually the, uh, the teaching part began to come up as the main part um, of the services. So by the time we get to Jonathan Edwards and the First Great Awakening, um, you can read his stuff. There is such an emphasis on preaching, teaching actually, doctrinal teaching, that when in the Great Awakening, when people started singing, there was a huge reaction against that. Um, There was a sense that singing is not of God, singing is not moved by the Spirit, and Jonathan Edwards actually writes a whole treatise that defends him singing and the church, believe it or not. Um, Then later on, we get to a place where, like, if we don't sing hymns, people are upset, too. So, I mean, who knows what goes on in God's God's house. Um, And actually, his treatise on that opened the door for um, the era of where all the great hymnody began to be written, and it began to grow out of that. By the end of the 1800s, we've moved away from doctrinal teaching, and we actually, you can go back and read the... um, what was being said in churches, there's lots of preaching. And by preaching, I mean um, teaching is where we kind of open it up and let the word speak. Preaching tends to be grab a verse and go and then just start talking to people and challenging people and calling people to decision, um, which there's a place for that. But preaching, in that sense, dominated um, the late 1800s, um, guys like Charles Finney. And so the gathered service was all about preaching to people for a decision. Um, So there wasn't much scripture reading. Um, there was singing, but singing was always designed, um, and I, I'll say this, I'll sound like a hard issue, I don't mean it, that. I think it was sincere, sincerity there. Singing was designed to help move people to decision. So um, for many of us who walked down an aisle at some point in time, the singing moved us, right? It got us going, they kept singing the same song over and over again until we were so um, tearful that we went down. Um, that began in the late 1800s, so there's lots of preaching, um, not a lot of the word, and the singing was designed to move people to decision. And so you can see it's shifted a long ways away from what the gathered services um, were meant to be. Um, in response in the early 1900s to um, textual, criticism, textual criticism and the rise of liberal theology, um, the church kind of um, reacted towards that. And um, 
teaching became all about teaching in more of an apologetic sense. So um, very strong teaching, very, um, but against things. So it's teaching against this, this false teaching or false ideas that they thought um, were out there. Um, focus on doctrinal teaching as the most dominant aspect of the gathered worship. Everything else is in preparation for the sermon. So I shared this before. My grandfather, who was a preacher, um, he really um, got antsy about the singing because it just took away his time. That's, I mean, he really viewed it that way because they believed it was in the sermon that that's where the service was all about. That's where, you, that's where you're going get, to get people. Um, so I sat through all those sermons um, during that time. Um, everything else I said is, um, is uh, just preparation for the sermon. And interesting, at that time, by that time, the table was just come fading out of many evangelical churches. It was practiced more, less and less and less and less. So some of us grew up in churches where we had communion once a month. Some of us grew up in churches where maybe it was four times a year um, and just kind of fades um, into the background. Um, as a matter of fact, I know of um, several, there's more than that, but I know personally of several places where um, today even the pastor sits in an office during all the worship time um, having coffee and looking at a sermon and sitting. And then when it's time for the sermon, he comes out and preaches a sermon. And so a sense that he doesn't even need to be a part of the worship because it's not really what matters. Um, whereas the preaching is just as much part of the worship as anything else. But there's this whole thing that God had designed for us um, that he wants to bring us to, and we've lost much of that. Today we still have much of that, I think, with the message being central. Um, but there's also been, a, over the last couple of decades, a huge infusion, and a good one, of uh, lots of worship music um, taking a much larger role um, but the danger of that, and, um, and I kind of like it, so, I mean, like we talked about before, our, our own cultures influence us, what we like. Um, there's lots of music in churches today, lots of worship music, but much of it's designed so we could come and have an experience. We go away going, I had a good worship experience. And when that happens, then the teaching turns from teaching, oftentimes, to things about life, which is good, but it's more of how-tos for life, how-tos for living, with reference to the word. And that, again, is a, a um, actually, it's, it's enjoyable, quite honestly, and churches do it really well, and, and um, I think people are impacted by it. But it's, it's, um, it's not what we saw from the very beginning. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's off, off kilter a little bit, in that we've taken things and used them for purposes that maybe they weren't quite designed for. Um, we're seeing recently, I think, especially among the younger generation, um, a fresh desire, I think, to return to a balance of scripture reading and hearing God's words, of, of congregational prayer, which is lost long ago, of, um, of actually knowing what the word has to say, of music that's built to build not so much for experience as much as for entering into fresh places of God's presence and we see as we've entered into those kind of places more, there's been a, a good response to that. Um, teaching that flows from the word and special regular honor given to uh, the community. As a matter of fact, a lot of the young churches here that are planted downtown here, almost all of them have the table every single Sunday. And that's new. That, that wasn't, that's, that's something that's new, and it's a fresh um, bringing together of a balance of worship. And what we are aiming for um, is an integrated worship that is Christ-centered, biblically rich, filled with scripture, um, 
I love seeing more congregational prayer happening here. We want to see that happen as more, more so. Teaching that flows from the text, renewed community around the table. Third of all, the connection between the word and the table um, and the centerpiece of God's story. So I'm kind of chatting along here, but we'll keep going. Um, our liturgy has four parts, but if there were a core to it, it is the word and the table. Um, the gathering and the sending aren't just add-ons in the beginning. They're actually significant bookends that help frame what we do, and they have an important part, but the core of it really is the word um, and the table. Um, and by the way, the word is not just, like we said, it's not just teaching, reading scripture, having time to meditate on scripture, um, acted out scripture, and then taught scripture. Think of it this way, the uh, word and table, it's the word spoken. <clears throat> As I said, that can be done with uh, reading and praying scripture, meditating on it, teaching it. Um, mostly here we've had just sermon, so hopefully we will find balance between hearing and reading scripture. So we have the word spoken, and then the table is the word enacted or, or lived out. Um, and that would be our communion time. Another way to see it is um, we, we hear God's story in the word, and then we see God's story in the table. It's supposed to be a visible reminder. Um, and you can see they go together. They're meant to be in, enmeshed together. They, there should be a connection between the two. Um, we pay attention to the written word, and then we celebrate the incarnate word, Jesus himself. And they're bound up in one another in inner gathered worship. And what they have in common is that the centerpiece of both God's word and the centerpiece of the table is Jesus himself. Um, the centerpiece is himself. We hear the gospel in the word, and we enact and celebrate the gospel in the table. Passages like John 5, 39, Hebrews chapter 1, Luke 24, which we'll look at in just a moment, Acts chapter 2, um, all of them refer to Jesus being the centerpiece of the whole story. From beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, Jesus finding himself as the centerpiece. So as we make the word, this word portion of our liturgy, out of that, Jesus should always be the one that gets highlighted in that because it's always about him. And then it makes a sense for us to gather around this table and remember the incarnate word as we enact that story at the table. Luke 24, verses 44 says, um, Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds um, to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Um, that's one spot, and then earlier in the passage we discover that he opens their minds up looking in a moment to see himself in all the scriptures. And so as we look at the word being um, the, this, uh, this second portion of our liturgy, Jesus is in the center of that. It's always supposed to gather around him and point to him. Our Bible is God's revelation of himself to us. Its primary subject is his son, Jesus. And we're shaped as people of God together when we let that story wash over us every single week, whether it's taught or whether it's just read. Um, through expositionary teaching, which we haven't done tonight, but um, when we walk, it's so why we take Matthew and we try to walk through it because we want to let the words of Scripture speak to us themselves. Or whether we read the Scripture, or whether we read the Scripture, um, or pray it out loud, or even sing it, all those ways let the gospel story um, wash over us. Turn, if, you, if you want, you can turn to Luke 24, 
And I just want to walk through this uh, very, very familiar story to see actually the whole liturgy that we follow, but the place of the word in it um, for us. Luke chapter 24, you remember Jesus has risen from the dead. They've heard stories about him. The women have run to the tomb. And it begins this way in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about the things that had happened. What I love about the beginning of this story, remember um, we talked about the fact that we, we are outside all week long being storied by all sorts of different stories out there, being shaped by all these stories. They're no different in this. They were no different 2,000 years ago. And life is just all around them. And so here we have these guys, just like we saw last week, the disciples who have gone back to fishing, back to that old storyline. Um, and Jesus comes along and reshapes them. Here again we have the disciples. They're just walking along. And what are they doing? They're talking about all the things that happen, and they're wondering about it, and they're, they're back out in their normal life like we do, um, you know, half an hour from now. We're back out there, and all these things are going on, so we have life happening out there. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And it says they stood still, and they looked sad. Um, interesting, here they are with all these things going on. And as a matter of fact, they go on, I'm not going to read it, but they go on saying this happened and this happened, and we don't know what's happening here. And we're wondering, these ladies said this thing, but we're not really sure if it's true. And he said he would do this, and it seems to have happened, but it can't possibly be happening there. And then they express, they express sadness. Um, and a little bit of despairing about wondering what is this sto- what's, what's the story happening here? And there's this confusion here that they express. But what I love about it is in the midst of all those things happening, Jesus himself takes the initiative and he steps in and he steps right into their story and he invites them in. He invites them in. He invites them in really casually here. But he's saying, tell me what you're talking about. It's, just a, it's a very gentle, grace-filled way to bring himself into the middle of their conversation and their story. As we do when we come out from outside this place, there's a sense that we come here and Jesus invites us um, gently, and he says, I want to be in the middle of all that. And then he lets us see those things. He hears what's going on in our life. Um, He helps us kind of lift it off, and he brings us into a different place. And he does exactly the same thing here. He just kind of walks alongside into the middle of their place, and he invites invites them in, in a sense. I mean, he's, he is, he's the host right from when he walks up to them. He takes on the position of the host. And so he lets them share. Um, and that's, like I said, that's what happens as we come to us, come here in our gathering. And then it says, verse 25, jump, let's just jump down there. Verse 25, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them all the scriptures and all the scriptures of things concerning himself. Isn't that great? As he invites himself in, as he, this gathering time, and lets them unpack all that and let it be, and then comes the word. The second portion of our liturgy, Jesus speaks the word. As a matter of fact, he does it in a miraculous way here as he just kind of surveys through from beginning to end and showing himself. 
Um, interesting, we have um, revelation here. Jesus reveals himself. And then we get response, because what happens in verse 25, it says, So they drew near the village to which they are going, and Jesus acts like he's going to go further. It's kind of like going, I'm just going to keep going here. What are you going to do with that? And it says, They urged him strongly and said, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. That's not why they wanted to stay. They wanted to stay because he had hooked them to the, to the message. And so Jesus reveals himself, and their response is more. That's just it. We want more. We want more. So stay with us. Give us more. Which should be our response as well as we, as we begin to um, let go of those other liturgies out there and stories, and we, we spend time in his presence. We remember who he is. We remember who we are. We begin to hear the word. We actually can hear it because we're prepared for, and our response is, I want more. I want to hear more. Um, and so Jesus does it. He says he stops and goes with them, um, and God offers up more to them. Um, it goes on. So he went to stay with them, verse 30. And while he was at table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. He vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? There's no coincidence that they sat at a table. And they ate, and then Jesus reaches just like he did the other night, and he breaks the bread in front of them. Um, it's, it's, I think God intends to show us something here. And there's something about when we gather and we let go and we wait on him and we remember who he is and we hear his words, the next step is then to celebrate him and what he did, to remember him, to kind of give thanks, to, to gather as people around him. And here are these three, three of them are gathered around this table, and Jesus breaks the bread and there is an unveiling that happens in that moment. And it doesn't come independently. It comes in connection with this invitation and this stepping in. And they had hearts that said, more. And so then Jesus reveals himself through his word. And then they gather around this table, and something happens there. Um, it's not just eating some crackers and bread here, but there's something that transpires as we gather around this place. And then it goes on, verse 33. It says, they rose that same hour. They returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, and they said, the Lord is risen indeed. They actually have had, there's no more doubt here. And he's appeared to Simon, and then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them significantly in the breaking of the bread. That was, that's the key point there. Um, after the table, what do they do? They go. They go with a message. They go to make a difference, and our sending portion comes right out of that. So we get the same thing. We get these lives are being lived. We get an invitation, this gathering. We get a gathering around the word. We come together with a table, and then there's a, a sending out. And I, even though this is kind of like a little mini gathering, the pattern is the same. And the pattern is there for a purpose because the pattern is transformative as we practice it. And even Jesus, I think here, there was intentionality about everything he did. He never did things haphazardly or just winged it. He just wasn't one of those kind of people. He, he had a purpose behind what he did. And he walked them through and prepared them to hear the word, to respond to the word, to gather on the table, and then to be sent with an entirely different sense about what the kingdom was about. Interesting that in the section to follow, uh, Jesus builds on that sending porch because he actually gives them a commission of what to do and what to go out and do. So, gathering reminds us of who has invited us. And we recognize him anew. We see ourselves in a different way. And it's only when we've gathered under, remembering he is the creator and he's God and he's almighty and he's in control and he's sovereign 
and it takes us a while to get there sometimes because it just doesn't feel that way in the world. When we get to that place, then we're ready for this portion of the word. I'm ready to actually hear it. I'm actually ready to submit to it, to actually listen to it, to consider what he has to say. I'm ready to respond. The word is God's primary vehicle to speak to his people, that's us. And although we should listen to his word daily, the scriptures lay for us a pattern of listening together, of learning together in the context of worshiping with one another. So that's why week by week by week, the word gets read, the word gets taught, because it's part of that process and that pattern for us. Week by week, as we pay attention to the word, we make Jesus the heart of the story and central in this place. And is when we have done that and done that well and entered into that place and that story, um, then we're ready to enact as one body and um, this visible picture of the gospel story of the table, um, which we will do. Um, I had uh, sent an email out and uh, up on the screen, and I was kind of th- I thought, you know what, some of you come ready to read your favorite verse um, or one that's impacted you. Um, it's always harder in a smaller group than it is on a Sunday when there's lots of people. Um, but I thought it would be nice just to hear what some of those verses were that have impacted us in our life or verses that we remember. Um, and just re- say them out loud or read them, whatever, you don't have to have it memorized. But, um, so if you've got a verse, um, I'm just going to ask you if you would stand when you, you read it um, just so we can all hear it well. And just let's, um, let's just hear them. Let's, just, let's, let's hear God's word as it's spoken from the hearts of each of us. So if you've got one tonight, um, just go for it. Stand up and, and, and read it out, okay? Somebody get us going. Great.
One more. Cameron, if you could bring the worship team up. Let me continue reading. I'll read from 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 10. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are now one body, for we all partake of the one bread. As we sing, uh, you are invited to uh, the Lord's table.